six of the best laps you'll ever see in racing. Every time you watch it, you just think, it's not going to happen. It's the equivalent of kicking the door open and then just shouting, I'm here, boys. Let's have at it. America, fuck yeah. Boogity, boogity, boogity. We're going stateside for a NASCAR classic this time, everyone. The year is 2000. The world didn't end. Hurrah. Ferrari are F1 champions again, and we all met up with Pulp at the fountain down the road. With me to talk Talladega 2000 is my good friend James Charman. First thoughts on this race? Uh, it has to be the man in black, the intimidator. How do not, you not get Will from Smith? A... No, no, no. <laughs> How do you get from 18th to first in four laps? Uh, and you can ask him at the time he didn't know so <laughs> how are we going to figure it out i have no idea it is just a total mystery i think poirot would still be twirling his little mustache trying to work it out the reason why i've mentioned pulp there uh is because a few days ago uh, i was at my local pub down the road and it is actually called the fountain so whenever i hear that song disco 2000 all i think of is the fountain down the road is actually where i now go and watch football matches that i don't win the ballot to get into <laughs> so i wouldn't meet at two o'clock that's maybe a bit too early uh jarvis but you know 8 p.m i'll probably see you down there surely for a three o'clock kickoff two o'clock is the perfect time to get there oh see i'm, I'm now in the the awkward big seven debate so now we have to be on tv apparently which is it you'll, you'll get there i promise i suppose my memory of the actual race though is, of course, you've got Dale Earnhardt and Dale Earnhardt Jr., both of which were, I would say, in a peak when it came to racing at a super speedway. And yet, never in this race are they actually helping each other at all. <laughs> Typical dad not helping his son out one bit to try and get some silverware. It's quite funny, actually. It's one thing you can say about Earnhardt. I mean... He had, obviously, DEI. You've got Dale Earnhardt. I can't remember who was racing for DEI that year other than Dale Earnhardt Jr. But, um, yeah, you've got his own... I was just Steve Park. But you've got his own team, and he's got his own... A car that he owns, chasing for the win. But he is so committed to Richard Childress and, obviously, winning the race himself. And I'm sure the million-dollar purse may have helped somewhat as well. Is the last of the dying breed, I think, of NASCAR drivers. He was one of those last two. I mean, he came through and he debuted in the well. It's his rookie season officially was seventy nine. I know that because I'm currently listening to Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s brilliant um, podcast series, just detailing every single race of that year. Um, it is an excellent. So, you know, he's, he grew up racing against David Pearson, Richard Petty, the Allisons. So. All the big hitters, yeah. If you just look at the statistics of race winners in NASCAR, all of these are involved, and they're the ones yeah. for the Hall of Famers, as we call them now. So he gets in the car, he wants to win, and that's just, that's just it. And you, especially an Earnhardt Talladega, whether it's senior or junior, it, it's it's only right that someone with the surname Earnhardt is in victory lane at the end of 
end of the day, whether it's junior or senior, I don't think the fans would have minded. Oh, Canapolis fever, isn't it? That track as well. But a lot of people would think a classic NASCAR race to start us off. And it's not Daytona, but it is the other one. I mean, these two races are just the ones you never miss, do you? I think the only one in my mind that would compete in a I really must watch that this year is the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. Um, but outside of those, yeah, the the two super speedways. It's also because the, most other circuits or tracks or whatever they want to call them, um, <laughs> there is no guarantee. Like you, you get an idea throughout the weekend who's running well, and yes, there's ebbs and flows throughout a race. But you genuinely know when you get to one of the cookie cutter tracks that, oh. Harvick's been running well this weekend. It's probably going to be three hours of him running at the front. Perhaps there's a caution, a pit stop cycle that gets out of the way, whatever. Um, but you pretty much know who's going to be running at the front. With the plate races, you don't know. For three hours, it is just a lottery. Like You could just... The lane that you're running in could suddenly not start working as well as the, the high line and you were running second at one point, you're now 14th, and you get caught up in the big one, and your race is over. Likewise, you could be running in 32nd, somehow dodge the big one, and now you're 7th, and in for a shot at the win, all within the space of two and a half miles. So for non-NASCAR lovers, or you know people that aren't as open to the idea of American racing, they, they might sort of think, oh, it's just turning left for four hours. How is that entertaining? Yeah, well, but I mean, Daytona I, I, and... my better half watched me watching uh, an onboard camera of Daytona because it is just a car in a massive pack of cars screaming its head off, giving it a little bump every so often. And then because it's in the early stages of a race these days where people are actually being intelligent with their minds of kind of going, I'm going to wait this out until it gets to the end uh shit people like her kind of look and go you're watching this for an hour and a half i go something's gonna happen i promise anything could happen as the murray walker used to say and eventually it usually did you're basically sitting in well it's the equivalent of sitting on the m25 in like three lanes of stationary traffic but instead of stationary you're going at 190 mile an hour that would that would certainly make the darford crossing a lot more exciting yeah, I mean, you tried bump drafting someone on the up the M1. Thank your pardon. <laughs> Very true. Oh, dear. I hope there are seatbelts on Kevin Hamlin's seat because he's going to need it to watch this one today. Folks, glad to have you with us. Almost 170,000 strong in the stands to watch the 32nd running of the Winston 500. So, let's just get straight into race day then. Joe Nemechek's on the pole position, just to shock everyone at this point. Over 170,000 mad fans in attendance. They all want a certain number three or a number eight to win. You can already tell. We talk about how exciting this race is. At this era, the restrictor plate racers, as they always call it, those machines they were racing in were a bit more unpredictable. You'd get a lot of three and even four wide racing at this stage. So I think the early laps, you're expecting mayhem as people try to get that extra point for leading a lap. Yeah, and I remember even at the end of the race, Dale Earnhardt was saying how much he didn't like racing with that rules package. He just he he never he never got on with it, but he still won with it. Um, 
but yeah it's it is just it's it's like vegas on wheels like you just the entire race is a gamble do you go high do you go low do you go red do you go black um, it's all there's all the thing about that, who do you choose as well there's it's you're yeah. talking it's just a huge chess game of working out the best places to be at certain points based on who's around you as well i mean there's a there's a, a hero of the hour in this race which we will mention in car number 55 who by the end of this race became the hero alongside the Earnhardts of the Canapolis area, basically, because of the little bit of loyalty that he showed towards Earnhardt later in the race. It is all about picking your fights and your friends carefully. And God, this got it shown yeah. in this. So also that number 55, he um he not just perhaps picks his allegiance with the number three that he's following. Uh, obviously, we talk about Kenny Wallace in the uh, uh, in the Monte Carlo. Interestingly enough, the reason that he did so, his teammate Joe Nemechek, who we already mentioned was sitting on the pole, was running a different livery that weekend to what he would normally be running throughout the year. Wallace didn't recognize him in his mirror, so mm-hmm. that's why he um, perhaps helped Earnhardt a little bit more than because had he realized it was his, you know. His teammate behind him, he may have, um, may have acted differently. But also, are you going to, are you going to go against the wishes of the intimidator? Oh you know, no! Do, do you really... No 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 no! <laughs> As we'll find out, we'll know exactly what the answer to that was in the last six laps, a bit later on. But it's funny how we're talking about loyalty at the minute because when this race gets underway, there is bollocks all loyalty involved with anybody throughout the field i mean they're going three wide putting each other in absolute no man's land in the middle lane just bloody selfish james absolutely the most selfish driving but it's america isn't it it's the uh, the entertainment factor and that getting sponsorship on the tv as quickly as you can you just go for it as much as you can at the start yeah they were doing that a lot and this was before the days of um you know you need to win a race to be able to qualify to win the championship at yes, the end of, of the course. year so this yeah this was just you know last last restricted plate race of the year last chance to get that one of those big iconic race wins because you know daytona's gone brickyard's gone charlotte's gone um darlington and the 700 is done so you know balls to the wall everyone wants to win it what was, what was the trophy? What was the trophy that they usually have at Talladega? Because uh, something that people need to realize is just how funny and brilliant some of the trophies are in American racing. Because I know that you get, um, is it Martinsville? You get a grandfather clock. I think Jimmy Johnson has 11 grandfather clocks in his garage. <laughs> I think he says, is it noon or something? Is just you have to have your fingers in your ears because it just the entire house is very, very loud. Yes. Um, I think you get a, a lobster um, for winning a race in maybe Pocono. Oh no, that's Formula One where they give out Stetsons. Um, oh no, you do I get um, Talladeg- you do get guns. I think for one of them, which will not surprise anybody. I think it's Texas. I remember seeing Tony Stewart. I was going to say that sounds blank, that blank sounds rounds being Texas. fired at the end of a race. That's the exact image I had of Tony Stewart. So um, was Tony Talladega. Stewart. Talladega is more of a traditional trophy, I think, and in typical American sports style once it's on its plinth uh it dwarfs the driver 
Yes. So you see every, every single American sport, I'm thinking particularly, you know, ice hockey, where it, um, the it's because they keep adding rings to be able uh, to yeah. um, add new names or, you know, the Borg Warner in the Indy 500. That thing is huge. I, I saw it once and I stood next to it and it was about the same height as me. It's a brilliant thing. Talk about the ice hockey trophy. This is complete tangent. And I know That's we're fine. not even a, completely out of it. Um, Def Leppard were once playing like the NHL season start show. Incredible. And someone brought, the, someone brought the trophy out, gave it to Joe Elliott. And um, he lifted it up and then put it on its plinth upside down because <laughs> he thought that, you know, traditional British trophies, the smaller bit is on the bottom and the big yeah. bit is what you lift up. So he put it on upside down and everyone said that he had just insulted every single ice hockey fan in America with one movement. We all make mistakes. Some drivers were being edged out more than others. Uh, Dale Jr., you'd think a few years after, or at least the year after, people would be working with him by that stage, realising how good he was when it came to restricted play at races. But at the start of this, there is no respect whatsoever for the poor man as he gets fully Ricardo zonted in the first few laps into the middle lane, nobody helping him out. You're just letting him fall down the order. Already the, the stalls have been set out, I guess, that... Nobody was going to be helping anybody early on, including poor Dave Marcus in the 71 car. He led after a wicked start, some lovely chess play early on. And what was his 60th Talladega start? That's just Talladega. 60 blooming starts. I mean, we, we're still young, mate. We are still young. But then he gets moved into the middle lane as well. And he gets Ricardo's onto his way back down there as well. A bunch of spoiled sports. So lovely little moment there but it was very short-lived. That's the good thing about NASCAR as well, is that, you know, the elder state, even today, you know, you still see drivers driving into their mid to late 40s, even 50s. I think Mark Martin was running when he was, I mean, the irony, he was the oldest driver on the field and he was, and he was sponsored, sponsored by, Viagra. by Viagra. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I think they replaced him with, I can't remember who it was. It was Jamie McMurray, I think. Um, he replaced him and he was a rookie at the time so everyone obviously made the joke they've replaced him with an up-and-coming racing driver that would have been Nigel Mansell's perfect opportunity to try NASCAR out wouldn't it <laughs> oh, I'm sponsored by Viagra speaking of experienced drivers as well Jeff Gordon was last in this race of course 43 cars but yet 20 laps later there he is inside the top 10 now that in my eyes <laughs> controversial views already out that's almost better than what we see at the end of the race, that is a whopping drive to get up in the mix already, but it's just classic Jeff Gordon, really, at this stage, probably at his peak. Although he was having a bad year. Um, it was not um, obviously one of the legends of the sport. Um, few will be on his level ever. Um, but yeah, the 2000 season, not one of his best. I think one of his lowest, he finished ninth at the end of the season. I think he only got three wins that season. Which, Ooh, Jeff, come on. You know, I mean, you would turn up three when you've already won. How many championships had he won by then? Three. Hmm. Um, it's not good enough. So he made up for it in 2001. He certainly did. He definitely did do that. But he was making it up for it in this race as well with the charge. It's one of those strange races where there's not a lot of, as they call, the big one. 
which is not the rocket on Toy Story 1 that Buzz Lightyear is attached to. It's, of course, the complete shimozzles that occur with restricted plate races. Uh, I think there was only three major cautions in this. A lot of those were single car or very accidental ones, which one Jeff Gordon was inadvertently involved in, which we'll mention later on. There's a bit during this phase, which I do enjoy, which is you get to learn, if you didn't already know, the true Dale Earnhardt as the three car just just moves Tony Stewart aside ever so slightly, getting right into the rear corner of him at turn three, just to take the lead. I think by that point, you realise that man has arrived. Just that cheeky little intimidation. You can't, you can't be scared of any of your fellow competitors because, you know, you've already lost if you've got that mindset. But if you're racing any NASCAR track, let alone a, a restrictor plate, you look in your mirror and you see good wrench services plus just coming towards you, you know, white letters, black background. You're going, oh, here we go. <laughs> there was another little thing as well I, I learned. Dale had a new set of gloves that weekend, which were very, very clear to see in the in the wind in your mirrors. I think they were mainly white gloves. And I think he only did this on purpose for these races just so that he could use the old John Cleland hand gestures to decide what he wanted to do in this race. And as we'll find out, it did actually work. Loyalty game of, would you like to join me in a little pact from this point? Little things like that do make a difference. It's the same with sponsors. There's cars in NASCAR where you just you just associate them, don't you? With it, it, The number is kind of associated almost with a sponsor. So see, you'll see a giant 24. You'll know exactly who that is and of course Darrell Waltrip a giant orange tide car coming into your rear view mirror I think by then yeah you can hear the belly rumbling at that point when something like that gets to you like I mean even go further back in the like we mentioned earlier the 70s if you've got that pale blue 43 bearing down on you no one is ever going to hold a candle to the great Richard Petty not even Lightning McQueen don't you try? I've got just as much cars knowledge as well. I could pretty much tell you all of their, all of their numbers. Is that going to be one of the races of our lives, like the McQueen last race? We might have to. With all the green flag racing in this race, it also brings in a thing that we didn't see very often, which I actually find a bit terrifying, which is green flag pit stops, where you've really got to know where. <laughs> Who's going to be coming with you as well? I think this is where the spotters will have a little bit of a game of, you coming in? You coming in? Okay, right, let's all get to that side of the track as soon as possible because there was one bit near the end of the race where Jeff Gordon, as he's slowing down, sees three cars behind him binning into each other, somehow escapes all of this. But it's terrifying, terrifying watching them all not only try and get themselves out of the little pack, but then... It's strange how they all end up meeting back up together in a, in the original mob after three separate sets of, or should I say, separate waves of pit stops. Yeah, it's it's hard enough on, like I said, one of the cookie, uh, one of the cookie cutter tracks because you know, you've got to step out of the way and and all of that. But then you're not running in a in a huge pack of three, four wide. You know, and also, could you imagine trying to merge back into that? You come out of the pits, you you come back off the uh, off the limit, and then you just look in your mirror and you just see this huge plaque of cars coming 
Well, well, it happened once, didn't it? Didn't, it? didn't it happen during a race where the pack might have been a Daytona? There was a race where a car was leaving the pit lane. It might have been Kevin LePage and just merged straight into the pack. And there was an immensely enormous shunt involving nearly the entire field. So it does happen. It's petrifying. It's one of those relatively tame races after a while, even though there is still a lot of jockeying for position. It happens all the time, doesn't it? You kind of wait till the last 60 laps. Of course, we've got stages now, which we all have our different viewpoints, of course, views our own, etc. But it was nice to know that cars at this stage were still trying to get to the crucial moment. I was going to say, I don't dislike stage racing purely because as a, you know, someone trying to watch NASCAR on this side of the Atlantic, um, it means I can watch stage one go to sleep and then i know exactly where to start in the morning with my recording i quite like the racing because you know you're going to get three mini finishes but yeah this was flat out well as flat out as would for a, effectively an endurance race because that's what these races are they are 500 mile endurance races flat out at 190 mile an hour or how many leaders there are but you know it was 188 laps and bill elliott got the most laps led and he only led 40 out of a 43-car field, 21 drivers led a lap. Nothing, Nora. That's that's how... You know, just, in, just imagine the sponsors just going, yep, there we go, tick, there's us on TV. Granted, it was, you know, like you said, a tame-ish race, but there was still plenty of moving and shaking up and down the field. I mean, people were leading laps that you wouldn't expect to lead a lap Ward Burton led a lap. Ted Musgrave led a lap. Um, Bobby Hamilton. Dave Marcus. He obviously, as you mentioned earlier, he led a lap. Stacey Compton led two. So, you know, so many people there that perhaps don't usually run near the front get their, get their moment. Yeah, one of the Burtons ended up leading with 60 laps to go. This is where you're heading into the kind of the final phase. Everything's brewing towards this point. Then the accidental pit lane entry schmozzle starts to take place, which sets up, thankfully, a race where there's no fuel concerns, which is always the iffy one on a lot of NASCAR races. It means that everyone is flat chat, just all out for themselves. This is where, in the final pit stops, Dale Earnhardt gains his brand new hero in Mr. Kenny Wallace. Both of them got sloppy pit stops, end up 19th and 18th, Dale ahead at this point. This is where it sets up a perfect finish and a perfect storyline. So Kenny Wallace himself told ESPN, all this happened because me and Earnhardt both had horrible pit stops. Then they dropped the green flag. It's panic mode. From this point onwards, as we get into the final stage, he's actually passing Earnhardt through turns one and two, immediately gets him back on the straight. And in the words of Kenny, that's where it got interesting. We know what he's usually like at the front of these races. I'd say many bets are probably going towards the Budweiser number eight car at this stage, aren't they? Oh yeah, definitely. There's something about the Earnhardt um, genes, or certainly the Dale Earnhardt genes, you know, Dale Senior or Junior, in that they almost had a sixth sense when in um, plate racing on when to make the move, like 
when to go high, when to go low. Um, and it, yeah, you you if there is an Earnhardt in front that close, it's a brave man that bets against either of them. Yeah, massively. Someone who then wanted to try and destroy this entire betting odds for the bet would, of course, be Earnhardt Senior. But we just don't see the three car at any stage during this next kind of 10 laps. So the only time we actually do see it is when there's almost a whopping great shunt as he squeezes back in from the apron, trying to go three wide with someone, which leaves this infamous long tire stripe down the right-hand side of the car, which I think makes that image different from all of the other races for some reason. I don't know why. I think I think it's easier for photographers to go and find that race because of it, but I was very nearly head on into the wall, which, as we then knew half a year later, would have been an eerie collision. Um, yeah, there's one thing about Earnhardt, you know, if he if he wants to make the pass, he then make the pass, he will make that pass, and if you get in the way, he will just take you with him. Um, so, yeah, it was weird, because when you look back on those like last 10 laps, I remember the TV guys, they are doing their sort of thing through the field, like they often do in those closing stages, and they cut back to Earnhardt, he's at the back of the pack, and they're saying like, what what's what's wrong with him? Like why why isn't he coming through? And then you you can hear the shock in their face when three laps later he's just appearing. Somehow he's he works his way through the field and frustratingly the cameras don't pick it up. There's a bit um, where Benny Parsons in commentary does actually say to Ned Jarrett, he goes, Don't you forget about Earnhardt either. And I think Ned did say afterwards, he kind of says, Well, I thought you were mad. I genuinely thought you were just talking rubbish about this because how can you recover from this stage? Because there were at least, we're going to say, around about nine, ten laps where just no progress was made. It was all about people working out where they were going to be at the front. And in the middle of all this, what we don't see is, of course, there's a gesture, a gesture that's given in car three with the white gloves. Uh, thankfully, it doesn't involve one finger. On this occasion, it's a, would you like to work with me? And it goes to car 55, the blue and yellow machine of Kenny Wallace, who by this point has been given a NASCAR lottery ticket, basically, to work with car three. And the quote he says is, I see this big old paw come up, waving like crazy. He wanted me to help him. When a legend says to you, I need help, you say, hell yeah. And of course, then we get into this phase where it's suddenly with six left to go. You'd think, nothing's going to change here. Oh, yes, it suddenly does. It all starts when people decide that they don't want to work with Dale Earnhardt Jr. anymore. It all kind of kicks off. There's <laughs> a small part where you do get to see that hand-waving that it goes on board looking back from Dale Jr. Obviously, by this point, Senior has worked his way up, and you just see this man just waving frantically, which is obviously saying, push me, push me, push me. Um and you also see there are moments where um, Junior, he he considers a move up to the high line to go around Skinner. He does, um, actually, yes. But then um, as he's doing it, he then realizes, oh, crap, my dad's there. And um, uh, so there was actually a press conference with Dale Junior. Um, I think it was pre-event um, press conference at the 2015 
uh, one of the 2015 Talladega races. And they asked him about these last six laps. And he was saying how, you know, he thought that running with Skinner was the right thing to do. It seemed like that was going to be the way to go. And then as he started to think, oh, maybe now I can get round him, take the lead. Suddenly, um, his dad is there. Um, mm. There's also to jump to another, to a tangent on my story, uh, is their ESPN asked Dale Senior in the off season, like, how did you do that? And he says he doesn't know. Um, and even when he tried to watch the replays, the replays don't show the bits that he wanted to see how he did. Um, but one bit he laughed about is that you can the moment where um, where Dale Junior tries to to go round him, he just sort of turns around and goes, "Nope, Daddy's there." Oh. Um, so, um, and then Junior was saying, at that point, once he saw that it was his dad coming alongside him, there was a part of him that thought, "No, I want, I want to see him win." You know, I, I really want to see Dad get his tenth win. Also. He's my ride out of the circuit. So yeah, if you're I be push, like at home. If I if I push Mike Skinner, his you know dad's teammate to the win, that's going to be a really awkward drive home if he even takes me. <laughs> Junior actually lifted. He stopped. He he lifted out of the throttle so that the line would start slowing down so wow. that Senior could. Um, the only other time I ever hear I've ever seen anything about Junior lifting in one of those races intentionally to not to avoid a crash but just to get out of the throttle um is i've just finished reading his um racing to the finish which was a book that junior wrote about his issue with um concussions which if you ever get the chance is a fantastic read um but that is a a different story so but yeah the fact that junior got out of the throttle which just shows how much you can lose in one lap at Talladega. It's such a shame because this was, I think, one of Mike Skinner's nearest misses, if that's the term to use, in his Cup Series career. Leading at this point, only to finish sixth by the end of it, in a low Chevrolet that was not with Jimmy Johnson behind the wheel, which is strange because, of course, that sponsor is always associated with a 48. Before Skinner and Junior end up going into battle, we've now got a battle up front where Mike decides he wants to take matters into his own hands, along with John Andretti. When they get to three laps to go, both kind of go, sod this, swamp Junior, put him in the middle, and suddenly it makes it four wide as everyone around it. It's a bit like the equivalent of having a bath full of either Pepsi or Coca-Cola and then just throwing in three full packets of Mentos with three laps to go and just watching it explode around them because suddenly people are going, well, I'm going to make a third lane. Oh, I'll make a fourth lane while you're at it as well. And there's almost a monster shunt in turns one and two as everyone tries to just work out where to go. Where's the safest place to go, really? It's also one of those moments, isn't it, where as a fan, you're watching. You don't, you can't take your eyes off it, but at the no, same time, no, don't. You, don't want, you don't want to watch because you're sitting there going, oh no, something bad's going to happen. And... I know there's a certain stereotypical style of NASCAR fan that, you know, perhaps would be cheering for a crash, but, and I know they are what make the highlight reels, but let's face it, we watch it for the racing, not to see some cars end up in the catrins. Well, it, it's the entertainment, isn't it? I, I did see a, a story from Russell Ingall, the via supercar driver. He said that when Marcus Ambrose, his former supercars teammate, 
was taking America by storm. He invited Russell to go into a press conference with him when they were both at an event together and said, compared to what we're used to, of course, you have the, don't do this, don't hit them, these cars cost money, blah, blah, all this, we'll give you a penalty for that. It was basically uh, chaired by someone who started by saying, there are XX number of people in that crowd. They've paid good money to come and see you put on a show. Enjoy. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> Bye-bye. They go, wow, yeah, these, these guys are different. So that that's just how it runs, isn't, isn't it, though? That's just how it's always been. It's Yeah, what's the catchphrase of NASCAR? Have at it, boys. Yeah, that's the one. Through a minefield of race cars at 190 miles an hour, and here comes Irvine. Meanwhile, while all this is going on at the front, what, as you say, we don't see is further back. Car three, with only six left to go, has started considering to make its move. All of a sudden, a push from nowhere on the back straight sees this car. You can just see a black and white machine emerging in the middle of this, what's a nice, clean two-line uh, two pack. This car just splits the pack and suddenly we've got a four wide moment in the middle of the top 20 where a car takes to the grass almost and Dale just just drives through the centre with Kenny Wallace tucked right behind him, almost like in a chain race. And he's up into the top 10 out of nowhere. Dale's worked out this could work. And then people start talking and the voices in the crowd start getting louder. It's starting to get excited, boys, isn't it? That's one of the things about that Talladega crowd is like you would think being in a car like like a NASCAR, you know, that is a big burly V8. That is making a lot of noise. You're surrounded by 15, 16, if you're in the middle of the pack, 42 um, other big burly V8s. But Dale Jr. said whenever he got to the lead, he could hear the crowd over the engines. That's how, how loud. How is that possible? Yeah, you, you when they they do those long shots of sort of spanning, you see the you see that bottom corner of the grandstand. You can see just how mad it's going, just because he is starting to get there. Um, and it's weird. It's almost like it's almost like a video game. Or set. You sit there and think, no, that's that's not possible. It is. It is funny, isn't it? Just Maybe. seeing it appear. In the middle, because it's almost like someone's just so like it's the equivalent of kicking the door open and then just shouting, I'm here, boys, let's have at it, literally. And then suddenly all the helicopter shots start coming in as well, where you see where is planning his next move. This is where the whole chess game comes in. And it's it's almost as though only two people have really got a full plan of what they're gonna do. Because of course when Mike and John Andre at the front decide they're just going to wreak havoc and do what they want to do. This leaves a little space for Dale and Kenny to suddenly get themselves into the mix. And that puts them in a position where they're in the top five. And this is where they start having to work out where they want, who they want to work with, with less than three laps to go. And this is the clip that senior was watching on um espn in the postseason where you know every time he goes to make a move the camera cuts to an in-car or to um or to someone else's angle so you can't see earnhardt 
So every move that you want to see in that sort of 11th up to 5th, you miss. You just like, you, he's there. The camera cuts away for a few seconds. And by the time you come back, he's suddenly at the front. It's I all think that's what makes distraction techniques as well, really, isn't yeah. it? You just, you just kind of see it appear. And then there's a moment when he gets to around about P3 or P4. And then we've got two lines. And suddenly, this is the chance where the, the Earnhardt's look like they're going to work together, God forbid. And then Senior just decides to think, there's a space up here. Shall I just, yeah, I'll just make a brand new line. Makes his line. Kenny goes with him. And I think by that point, when he goes with him, everyone just suddenly decides, I'm going to go up there as well. People have worked it out. And it's ended up somehow from being 18th. He's now at the front of a line. And he's ended up side by side for the lead with only two laps to go. It's astonishing. It's just weird how everything just works out that everyone spots what's going on and then suddenly he's controlled the entire mindset of what everybody's doing. He knew when to make the move and or if the move wasn't there, he would make it happen. I don't, there is no one, Dale Jr. came close, but there's no one else that was ever able to just control a race that really should not be controllable because it's a restricted plate race. It's it's a race that is just, you know, that's, as we said at the beginning, that's why everyone loves them. They're so unpredictable. It's just able to predict the unpredictable and it was mind, mind blowing to watch. They're having got himself to the front, Kenny Boy right behind him. Away they go. The rest is just history, really. The crowd are having the best time you've ever heard. It's this is what sport is about. This is why we love it. Seeing this, everyone just en- encapsulated by the hero of the hour, really. In their case, winning the race. Even his team was completely like um, the Chocolate Myers, uh, the you know legendary Richard Childress. Mm-hmm. Um, was he mechanical? Was he creature? I can't remember exactly what his role was. Um, but he said, you know, there was, and you'll know this from being in um, pit lanes up and down in touring cars, GTs, wherever. Anyone that has worked in motorsport for a long time will know you don't celebrate until your car is across the line. Absolutely. And they had had a day where, you know, he was running at the back with 10 laps to go. Like, oh, well, this is just a, it was just one of those, oh, put it in the back. Let's start thinking about next week. And they were already starting to like, you know, pack up tire stacks. They were mm-hmm. bringing the, um, putting everything away. And then the, they just turned around and suddenly Dale was working his way up through the field. And they're one of the most experienced crews in the entire NASCAR paddock. And when Earnhardt Senior got to the lead, they were whooping and cheering the fan. They got completely, if a team of that stature is able to get completely caught up in the moment, it's no surprise that every Every single person in the grandstand and watching at home still remembers how intense this race was. The no ball five contender, Mr. Mr. It's a gorgeous moment. It's the it was a 76th win of Earnhardt's career, I believe, in that. But if you add in non well, yeah, if you add in exhibition races, non-point scoring races. He ended with a absolutely OCD perfect 
100 race wins, I believe. Which is 50% of what Richard Petty ended his career on. Which was also beautifully OCD helpful. <laughs> so yeah, from 18th and 19th, Earnhardt wins, Kenny Wallace second, Joe Nemechek, great result third, Jeff Gordon from last to fourth, that's a fantastic performance. Terry Labonte, fifth, winning nine cars, retired from the race, actually. So, really tame in the end. There, there was a moment, though, when there's probably more than nine cars involved in a shunt as they crossed the chequered flag. It's a typical plate race, especially these days. It's then it's one of the things that I actually, you know, I, I, I hate seeing finish line crashes. It, it just, it, it annoys me. I don't know why. It's just one of those. It's like the dog leg at Kansas or no, is it Kansas or Phoenix, you know, where they just literally, they are going all the way basically down to the pit wall. And it's oh, like, what's yeah. the point of the white line? What's, what's the point? Um, yeah. Ricks at the finish line. I just don't know what it is. It's just like, you're not going to get past. Don't try and push your way through just because the finish line's there. My bike Skinner, of course, missed out on the top five. He'd have been absolutely minging with disappointment from that. But all of that came from just, there's a moment where Dale Jr., it, it almost looks as though he's panicking, thinking, oh, my only chance of getting at least second behind my dad is to make my own line as well. And it just causes a bit of carnage, and he ends up swamped on the apron, finishing 14th in the end. I think he was expecting Skinner to go high, and Skinner just stayed exactly where he was, which is what left Junior on the apron. Um and Junior did all right for himself um, after that. <laughs> Even though Junior won two races, he ended up losing out to Kenseth, um in the Rookie of the Year battle. He only took one win that year, but he chose a good one to win. Um, he won the um, Coca-Cola 600. But, you know, if you're going to win one race in your rookie season, that's not a bad one to choose. It's, it's definitely, definitely helpful for your wallet, I know that. And ironically, Dale Jr. started on pole and led the most laps in the race as well. So, it's, did, did you curse him? Did you curse him by supporting the eight car from this point onwards, James? Is this where we have to have the uh, <laughs> the podcast with you and him where you just apologise for an hour? I was thinking about this when we were putting this together and it's easy to say Jr. didn't have like a great career because he didn't win a championship. But I think that's purely because he was being compared to the fact his dad won seven. If you actually look at at Junior's um, career from start to finish, yeah, okay, he didn't win a championship, but he did. He won twenty six races. He was very, very good at restricted plates. He was always there or thereabouts. Um, he made as when playoffs came in, he made the playoffs quite regularly. I think he. He would have made the playoffs in his final year had it not been for all of his, you know, concussion and concussion and injury breaks and everything that he had to step away from. And he is now one of the best pundits that NBC has got. So yeah, he he finished third in two thousand and three. He finished fifth in two thousand and four, fifth in two thousand and six, and again fifth in twenty thirteen. So yeah, he wasn't winning championships, but then it's difficult to win a championship when you're racing at the same time as Jimmy Johnson. Right. It's like saying, you know, Juan Pablo Montoya didn't win a Formula One World Championship, but that's because Montoya was racing when Michael Schumacher and Ferrari were cut above the rest. That's the same in World Rallies, where if you weren't called Sebastian for a healthy long time, 
you didn't win a title. But yeah, people came very, very, very close. Apparently after the race, Dale Earnhardt Sr. invited Kenny Wallace, who's a brand new chum at this stage, to visit his motorhome and recount the final details of the race. Kenny actually added to ESPN, it's very hard not to read this in his accent, but I'm not going to. Relief. He says, you take huge pride that someone you respect so much likes you and wanted you to help. To this day, you think it happened last week. I go to the DMV to get my license in Kinapolis. They're all so nice to me. That race is just why. I know that for a fact. Kinapolis lives, eats and breathes the ghost of Dale Earnhardt. That was a very special day for that man. It really was, I think, that back then. It's nice that one of the nice guys of NASCAR at least got a part in this race. Of course, this race also marked the last in terms of statistics of quite a lot of different stories, all involving Dale's car. The three car wouldn't actually then win a NASCAR race until I think it was 2017 in the Coca-Cola 600, ironically. That would, of course, be Austin Dillon. It's crazy to think it's that long. Absolutely mental. Right. Well, I mean, if you want a, a really potentially morbid stat, this was the last restrictor plate race Dale Earnhardt would finish. Um, and, and his last ever appearance at Talladega in what was his last full-time season. Um, yeah, they say you're saying uh, your best to last, but it's, of course, no one would have known this. We all know what happened at Daytona, but it's just it's terrifying to think that when you're watching four, this, four years this after is his, the last one. Yeah, was, was it, it was 97, wasn't it? The the famous high five down the pit lane. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, like you say, save your best till last. No one knew it was, but um, what a way to for the fans in Talladega for that to be the last time they saw Earnhardt. You love seeing the big names racing for as long as they can, but at the same time, do you really like seeing them finishing in the midfield mm-hmm. for in a maybe a lesser extent? But Matt Neal and Jason Plato's last years in the BTCC was it was it as good watching them race? For tenth and eleventh, I know. Okay, they were possibly a little bit higher for sixth and seventh. Sometimes battling for the top five, but you really want to see those legends of the sport battling for wins. And you know, Dale Earnhardt finished his last race holding third, watching his two DEI cars drive off to win the Daytona Five Hundred. It's perfect, really. It's, he left such a legacy behind him. Of course, the tragic Daytona 500 incident. Uh, someone who then brilliantly won a race in that car, albeit with a 29 on the side, was Kevin Harvick. He, amazingly, was one of several drivers that wasn't in this race. I think when back in the days of qualifying, you didn't know who was going to make it through. I think Ryan Newman, I think Kurt Busch even. So there's two champions in there of the future. Both didn't even make the race. So that Kevin Harvick win. There are so many things that have happened, like, and it's weird. It's like sport does this to you, and it has these moments and things like, for example, Harvick winning his third race in what should have been the number three. Dale Earnhardt Jr. winning the very next race at Daytona, where you know there's that there's that beautiful shot of Earnhardt Jr. and Michael Waltrip hugging on the roof of both of their cars because obviously so Michael lovely, didn't yeah. get to celebrate. He didn't get to celebrate his Daytona 500 win. Um, 
And have you seen the clip of um, Daryl Waltrip commentating on that final of the 2005 Yeah, the bit that I love about it is the fact that, of course, he's like, yeah, Mikey, uh, all the emotions flooding out, but instantly, seconds after the flag's gone, he just goes, I just hope Dale's okay. He's like, check, check with Dale, is everything okay? He'll be okay, won't he? Because those families were so close. And then three years later at the Daytona 500, 2004 Dale Earnhardt Jr. wins. Just, you know, it's the number three. Just, it's just it's crazy, crazy, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. I'm saying in this race as well, there was only three yellow flags as well. It's just outrageous stuff. Yeah, so last time we recorded something, you put me right under the cosh and tried to tell me who had won the races of the 96 superbike season. So, why would I possibly do that? There were 14 race winners throughout the 2000 NASCAR season. Let's see how many of them you can name. Can I name three? Can I do one of these where we say, how many can I guess? (laughs) And then I get correct answer. Or I could probably try about 10. I'll tell you what, let's let's just guess go. Dale Earnhardt Sr. Dale Earnhardt Jr. Yeah. Uh, He's a bizarre one. Jeremy Mayfield, I think, might have won a few then. He got two that year, yeah. Ooh. Uh, Jerry Nadeau? Correct. That was the one that I thought was going to be the... uh... Unlucky. This is where I make the mistakes of the obvious ones. Uh, Jeff Gordon. Correct. Uh, Jeff Burton. Correct. 2000. So, uh, who won the title? Bobby Labonte. Correct. I love how it took me that long to get to the actual champion. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want to say. Um, Matt Kenseth. Correct. Coca Cola six hundred. I know Mike Skinner is not in that. I know he's not, so I'm going to ignore that. I'm trying to list off the numbers in my head. So you have not yet got the guy, the guy who won the most races in that year. Well, that's clever of me, isn't it? Is Kenny Wallace one of them? I feel like he he might not have been. (laughs) I've mentioned Steve Park. You have not. That, that, that is one. Kevin's so you're, you're on nine now. Hey, my God. What what has happened? I used to be good at this, you know. Don't ever let me on pointless. Tony Stewart. Julie. Yes. He won six races that year. Four, two, two back-to-backs. So there's your ten. The four that you missed were Rusty Wallace, Dale Jarrett, Mark Martin, and Ward Burton. Stuart got six, Labonte got four, as did Rusty Wallace and Jeff Burton. Jeff Gordon got three. Um, the three Dales, Earnhardt, Earnhardt Jr. and Jarrett, and Jeremy Mayfield got two. And the remainder was Mark Martin, Warburton, Steve Park, Matt Kenseth, and Jerry Nedu. Well, it was the one win I remember the most clearly. <laughs> So the car that Earnhardt obviously won, the car that carved through, has now been immortalised. It's been completely restored by the Childress 
it is regularly seen on this side of the Atlantic. Um, it's one of the regulars that visits the Goodwood Festival at speed. So if you're a NASCAR fan and you're in West Sussex in the sort of summer months, you you might get to see it. Something I do enjoy is that there are some races out there which are brought up by kind of filler content on sports channels in America, which includes the top 10, say, Talladega finishes or top 10 close finishes. And there's one which was genuinely called the NASCAR's top 10 wildest throwdowns, which is basically all the times that people like Kevin Harvick, Greg Biffle. Yeah, Kevin Harvick's in at least seven <laughs> or something so like that. Kelly Arborough's um, punch up in there. Yeah, I think that was probably number one. Because that's, I'm sure that's known in inverted commas as the fight. So, um, though you mentioned um, content, have you seen NASCAR's new um, content platform that they've released called the Classics, which is um, the best races in their history to celebrate 75 years, where it's basically all of the really, really good races, and I think pretty much the entire catalogue of NASCAR going all the way back to the 50s like where they're literally racing on the beach of Daytona and it's the full coverage like completely full three hour races and it's free so if you really want to you know spend a lot of time there is a lot of NASCAR content out there to go through that is literally why we're doing this because it's just so much just appearing out there to the point where you could probably even see someone uh, do a remake of the fabulous Hudson Hornets uh, title win in, of course, Disney's Pixar Cars. But yeah, definitely check out that archive. It is phenomenal, and you will probably lose many, many, many days of your life. But that's just that's what we do. So yeah, definitely get down to the archive and watch this race if you haven't. We know you probably have, but it's so exciting. Even now, it's just so exciting to watch it back, even though you know what's happening. This is the joy of looking back at these races. And it's just why people like myself and you, James, keep going back to natter about it as we go. Every time you watch it, you just think, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to, oh, no, it's going to happen. There it goes. That's why I've watched it. Not only did it happen, it's definitely here to stay. Thank you so much, JC. We'll have you back very, very soon to talk about another classic race. So from now on, from the rest of our lives, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from him. See you next time. Bye. So come on then, which ones have we missed? Get on social media and find us to let us know what classic races you want us to cover and your memories of them. Just remember to use the hashtag races of our lives and we'll read out your memories as we go. 